Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon Anker for Bloomberg News, Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are pleased to be joined by one of the most accomplished journalists covering China and Hong Kong, Wall Street Journal reporter Natasha Khan. Natasha is based in Hong Kong, reporting for the journal since 2017, with recent stories that have explored the challenges to Hong Kong's political system, pro-democracy activists and their prosecutions, the city's response to COVID-19, and more recently, as we just learned, China's space program, among other things. Natasha received a master's in journalism from the University of Hong Kong and began her career as a reporter for Bloomberg. At Bloomberg, her team won an Overseas Press Club Award for Best Investigative Reporting after unearthing major details about wealth held by the families of Chinese leaders. And I'm really happy to say that I've known Natasha since her time at Bloomberg, and I'm really, really happy to have her here with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks, Natasha. It's terrific to have you here. Natasha, let me start with the current event. Just recently, earlier this month, we passed the anniversary, the 32nd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square events. And as the press reported, there were a number of events in Hong Kong of an exceptionally heavy police presence in Victory Park, where in previous anniversaries, many thousands of Hong Kongers uh, would come out to commemorate those events. Can you give us a sense of what it was like, what you saw? and sort of your initial reflections on this anniversary and the overwhelming preemptive, in some ways, response by Hong Kong authorities. Yeah, I guess, as you say, for the last uh, many years, there's always been, you know, a big commemoration for the Tiananmen Square events. And I'd like to start by saying last year, actually, the vigil was also not allowed by authorities because of uh, COVID-19 public health measures and social distancing rules. But thousands defied those rules anyway, and they actually, it was, it was a lot smaller than they, it usually is. So there were, but there were still a lot of people who went to the park to light a candle as they always had. And this year, and, and after that, actually, um, quite a lot of the a number of people who had called for the vigil to go on last year are actually were arrested uh, subsequently um, and sort of for unlawful assembly. So this year, you know, ahead of the planned vigil, there were, uh, you know, once again, it was denied on public health grounds. Um, and the authorities actually took the extra step to close down and lock down the park for a number of hours. Um, still, there were thousands of people that did come out and kind of in the surrounding areas of the park. Some of them lit their phone torches. Some people did light a candle nearby. But definitely, it's it's a scene that we hadn't seen last year um, in light of uh, the pandemic. But also, that was a few you know after a few days after the national security law had been announced as well. Um, but you know, this year Victoria Park was empty for the first time in many years. Um, on this anniversary. I was going to say, when I first moved to Hong Kong in 2014, I still remember the first week I was there, I was sent to cover the umbrella move and the umbrella protest. And I was still carrying you know, our tripod, helping out with the cameras. And they were telling me, you have to get on the MTR. And, 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 
and I'm like, what is the MTR? <laughs> it's like, it's a subway because <laughs> you can't take cabs into the middle of the protest and everything was really uh, paralyzed. And I, I remember, Natasha, you were with us at Bloomberg. How is the atmosphere different from when we covered the protests back then and now with the umbrella movement, with the national security law being passed as well? You know, in 2014, I would say it was definitely, it's it's interesting because looking back at the time, as you say, it, it was, you know, the city was paralyzed for 79 days. You know, the protesters had occupied um, main roads, actually outside the Bloomberg office, if you recall. Yeah. Um, you know, many of them, as the protest movement kind of went ahead, um, you know, some of them pitched tents. There were sort of many students were staying there for many days or, or even weeks. And, you know, again, at the time, I think generally it was disruptive, but it was still, a, I would say, a very peaceful atmosphere. You know, mm-hmm. you the, um, you know, the students would set up study tents and, you know, there was Yeah, that- it was a very sort of happy and joyous occasion to come together, right? I remember that. Well, in some way, I mean, I think I, think I would say it, it was very, there was this sort of sense of political awakening, but it was by and large very peaceful. I mean, of course, there were clashes here and there, but I would say during 2014, what we, was, we would see, it was, it was definitely disruptive to the city. Um, you know, as you say, I think cars couldn't go on, on, you know, right outside the government building for weeks, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but generally it was, it was, I would say compared to the events of 2019, that was very mild. Right. And of course I, I actually was still at Bloomberg for the three years after that and, you know, covered uh, the political scene here and there. And of course the stories then sort of veered towards some of the activists who had organized 2014 protests being arrested or, you know, um, there was sort of the aftermath of, of that event, right? And in fact, I, I believe like, I think my first story for the journal, if, if I recall, is actually when um, student, former student activist Joshua Wong was sent to prison um, for his role in those 2014 protests. So I think that was actually my first story for the journal. And then, you know, in 2019, the situation really, the atmosphere was very, very different. You know, I would say mm-hmm. um, in the beginning of the genesis of that, you know, it was it was uh, just to remind um, listeners and viewers of, of the podcast, you know, was there was a extradition bill that was proposed by the government that many people here were, were opposed to. Um, and I think that sentiment gained momentum. And um, on June 9th of 2019, you know, hundreds of thousands of people came out on the street and it was interesting because at the time, you know, because I had covered the 2014 protests in those five years in between, there was always sort of this observation that, you know, the the presence of a lot of the protests in between kind of, well, it was a more, a more sparse, you know, there's not as many people coming out, but 2019, you know, I remember at first it was, it was me and I think um, a, a very dear colleague who was working with me that day, but we were thinking, okay, like, We'll write a story. We'll have it covered. Be done at you know you know whatever in the afternoon you know. And I think there was this moment when we when we had got to actually Victoria Park as well that suddenly just realized like so many people were coming out on that day. Mm-hmm. You know there was like this energy of hey like something's happening here. And in, in fact that turned out to be one of the biggest protests um, I think Hong Kong had seen in, in many years. And then, you know, the whole situation snowballed, right? Because I think after that big show of people coming out and it was, you know, very peaceful on that day, um, 
the, the government announced that they would go ahead with their plan of, you know, introducing the extradition bill to the, the legislative council, which is the lawmaking body here to, to it's for debate. And I think that triggered a lot of anger for a lot of people because, you know, they felt that, well, you know, so many of us came out and, and there was sort of no, de- no debate on this. And I think then a few days later, in fact, right again, where the 2014 protests were, many people came out again. And, and that day, their intention, many of them, at least that we spoke to on the ground, were saying that they came because since they had come out to protest a few days before and, and you know, the extradition bill is going ahead, that they would, you know, they would use, you know, physically be there that day to show that, hey, we're really not okay with this. We, we really want to block that, you know, that this law is going to be debated in, in the legislature. And then things got turned a bit, you know, I think that day, um, you know, there was, there was tear gas used. I still remember that the protests started with, you know, the extradition bill and then they were very politically motivated. But at the same time, I still remember talking to the people and to the students on the streets. And uh, as I said, they were in a way kind of hopeful that things will change. And also it seemed to reflect a broader movement that's not to do just with, you know, the politics, but also I can't afford to buy a house. I'm this age and I'm dissatisfied with the way that the city has evolved where I, I, I'm not paid enough. I can't afford a house. It seemed to be uh, a really a mixture of a lot of dissatisfaction coming together. But at the same time, it seemed to be that students, especially the younger generation, at least from where I was standing and you hear the chants and people are eating and drinking, it still felt a little bit hopeful. Is any of that still left? Well, yes. I mean, I would say that I wouldn't categorize the sentiment among sort of the people involved in the movement as hopeful at all. Um, I think that, you know, ever since 2019, so much had happened since that initial protest and, you know, things got violent at times. I think there were such persistent protests that I, I, I don't, it was a very, very different scene on the streets that you saw in 2019 than 2014. And I think um, I would say before the pandemic. So I, I, I remember actually working on New Year's Day in 2020, there was still a pretty large protest. And then the pandemic happened, so that really curtailed a lot of, um, you know, street protest. And of course, the introduction of the national security law has has really been very a big impact to the protest movement as well. I definitely think, I mean, first of all, because we haven't actually seen sort of a street protest that's been like the ones that you probably saw in 2014 since, I would say, early 2020, it, it's it's really difficult to really gauge sentiment. I, I would say that hope or that more milder tone ha- has really changed a lot in the, in the last year or so, for sure. Natasha, we were chatting beforehand. You made the observation that um, things it, from an outlook in Hong Kong, there's an intertwining, if you will, of the consequences of the pandemic application of the national security law, efforts to suppress protests, because all of these things are unfolding at once. And you mentioned, you know, there hasn't really been any kind of protest by Hong Kongers since early 2020. And if I recall correctly, at the beginning of this year, uh, a large number of leaders of the democracy movement, I want to say a little under 50, were arrested under the national security law. 
And as we, as you described at the beginning, there's uh, clear moves by authorities to suppress any indications, it would seem, of protests or, or expression, democracy expressions. What is, maybe speak a little more, I mean, what is the mindset and outlook that you, from your conversations, your sense among kind of leaders who aren't in jail, who aren't imprisoned of the democracy movement? I mean, how, how would you anticipate events might, might or might not unfold over the next, or you know, the remainder of this year? Well, uh, if we're just talking very short term in the remainder of this year, I think people we speak to often, you know, describe the situation as being quite bleak still. I mean, in terms of democratic movement or actions or things like that, um, I think, as you say, I mean, first of all, I guess I'll clarify, it's not that there were zero protests since the early 2020. There have been pockets mm-hmm. of, of protests, but but definitely nothing that like what we saw in 2019. Um, and, and as you say, there has been sort of pressure on a number of fronts. And, and of course, the most dramatic would probably be the arrest in earlier this year of 47 of, of some of the most prominent figures in the democratic movement, um, and many of whom actually are still in prison, um, awaiting trial. And, you know, they, many of them have been denied bail. And, and it's, people describe that really as one of the most bleak developments uh, in the Hong Kong political scene and for the democratic movement. I would say that many of the more outspoken voices that, you know, you might have heard from in, in the news or, or that, that you might know from your conversations um, right now, many of them would be unreachable because they're, they're uh, detained. And it does feel, especially as, especially with, with the political front, for sure, that the space for, you know, very strong opposition has really shrunk considerably. I will say, though, that there is still, you know, um, on my walk to work, there's still people fundraising for the Democratic Party, for example, or, you know, people holding up posters of some of the people who are detained. So it's quite a contrast in some ways, because in a way, we still see those actions being allowed. But of course, there is a, a very overwhelming sense of, you know, if, if you are, let's say, a member of some of these political parties and you see that many of the leaders of the parties have been detained. And, and, and you know, again, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the case, but basically many of them had a self-organized and unofficial primary to sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, choose the best candidate. And one of the stated goals of that primary was that they could basically gain a majority in the legislature. And many of them stated that, you know, or, or the organizer had said that that could be a strategy to eventually um, paralyze the government. So that was sort of some of the the things that had been talked about at the time of the primary. So, so they were then targeted, um, you know, by authorities in January and, and you know, um, their, their case is still, you know, going through the courts. You mentioned the unofficial primaries as a as a premise for the legal action. For our listeners, as you look out, you know, rest of this year or, or even into twenty twenty two, is there a date on the calendar that could produce more pressure 
here that that could spark demonstrations um you know how should how should we think about it hmm frankly i i I would say i don't foresee and and you know journalists are never good at making predictions (laughs) but i would say in in generally for the next few months i can't really see a big resurgence of sort of huge street demonstrations again you know there have been pockets of that. So for example, uh, last July 1st, which is the anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from from the UK back to China, uh, you know, that was a few hours after the national security law had been passed uh, in Beijing. And and I would say there were actually, you know, thousands of people coming out. So, you know, during the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square events, there were thousands of people. So there, there are, again, I don't want to. I don't want to say. Oh, it's it's small, you know, because of course there's that's still thousands of people. But you know, to s- compare it again to what the very very large scale events we saw in 2019, right. it's hard for me to see that returning anytime soon. And I guess it's also because of all of those COVID restrictions that you've talked about that now some people are saying could go on forever. Is this an indefinite excuse to actually keep all of these protesters and keep all of these uh, assemblies from happening? Uh, You were one of the first people who reported on actually the coronavirus being a new type of disease uh, coming out of China. Give us your sense of what the reaction was, because since that has happened, we have seen this pushback and push and pull between Hong Kong and China, whether it's how open they're going to keep the borders. There has been a lot of criticism of the chief executive and how she handled, you know, the infections and and the flow of, of, of people from the mainland as well. So give us your take of the first few months and what happened since then. Sure. Um, you know, I remember it was early January and we had been hearing of this mystery pneumonia from Wuhan. And when I heard about this new mystery pneumonia, um, my editors was like, oh, Natasha, call around, see what you can find out. And found out that actually it turned out that China had discovered uh, this new coronavirus and at the same time had actually completed the genetic sequencing of it. So I think at the time, I was told that, you know, things were, you know, they were, they were managing it and at some point would announce this new finding. But after um, our story is published, actually the next day, and, you know, there's been other media that has since reported that because we published that, I think it did speed up the the time of which um, Chinese authorities disclosed this new discovery. There was early criticism about the border issue, but, you know, by and large, Hong Kong has... I have to say, really kept the virus situation under control. Since the whole pandemic has started, it's a city of 7.5 million. We've had like 11,000 confirmed cases and 200 deaths for the whole year and a half. And I mean, in the beginning, there were tensions about borders, but eventually I think, you know, Hong Kong really did start sealing the borders to to everybody, really. I mean, eventually um, has. I think right now, it's been many months now that non-residents still cannot come to Hong Kong. There's been some loosening of these rules for, I think, very senior executives of like listed companies or financial institutions. It is the financial city after all. But uh, now one of the biggest issues is the vaccine hesitancy. So I was going to ask. Right. So that's you where actually politics... From the conversation about the Hong Kong protests and so forth, whether it's 
some sort of distrust of, of the government of, of mainland China that's leading to so much vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong. I mean, I know friends and colleagues who are in Hong Kong and many haven't been vaccinated despite the fact that there are vaccines available, right? Yeah, it's it's been um, kind of an issue. Certainly the distrust of the government and, and by sort of the pro-democracy camp um, type uh, people might, might be one group that is, you know, very hesitant to get it. I mean, I, I, I wrote a story about this last week where I spoke to somebody who said, well, you know, I'm never going to get the vaccine. I don't care what, what incentives it's, it's the only way, you know, I, I, you know, I really want to protest the government. So that's one group of people I think that, you know, doesn't want to get it because they, they don't trust the government. They don't trust, um, they don't want to help the government. That That's what they say. Then there's others. I think, I think honestly, a big part of it's also that Hong Kong, in some ways, is a victim of its own success. So a lot of people are a bit worried about the vaccines, both of them, even though, let's say, the BioNTech one is used, uh, has been used worldwide. They feel that, you know, it's a new technology. And, you know, I mean, something that a lot of people say to me, you know, when I've, I've been reporting these stories has been, oh, well, but right now, there I might get more side effects from getting the vaccine than getting the virus. You know, there's that sentiment. I mean, I will say we have seen that the vaccine sign-up rate has up a lot since the announcement of all this, uh, the cash the cash prizes and the apartment and things like that. But right now, actually, the government is really trying to, I mean, so generally the strategy has been to go to zero COVID. And, and in fact, a lot of that's tied to them wanting to open the border with the mainland because that actually i mean i think i think the recent rule i mean right now there's been a, a an outbreak again um in, in in guangdong so that has impacted plans for a while but they had been set to announce that i think people from the mainland could actually come in here come to hong kong uh, quarantine free that was a plan but but then i think if you if people from hong kong went to the mainland they would still have to quarantine for uh two to three weeks Great, great segue, Natasha. I wanted to ask you, so, you know, we talked, you described sort of outlook from political side, democracy activists, uh, bleak, and also sort of a larger sort of stifling atmosphere for a number of reasons. And I'd love to hear your perspectives on the economic outlook and maybe take both the pandemic and the political dimensions separately maybe start with the pandemic implications is is the continued struggles on the pandemic with low vaccination but you know generally speaking you know ability to conduct activities is there is it starting to have an impact from a you know from the pandemic perspective on business you know the financial sector corporate activities in hong kong or not i think it, it difficult while because the pandemic i would say is still really is pandemic and political developments are still sort of yeah i would say the two big issues that kind of have preoccupied the city in some ways um and so you know a, a lot of plans that have been spoken about let's say the greater bay area you know this big metropolis many cities in southern china that include hong kong i mean it's, it's hard to see that really getting started if you can't even travel. I mean, there's a train that usually would take 15 minutes to get to Shenzhen. Like that was a new high-speed train that, you know, has been shut for months, right? So, you know, things like that, which I think if the pandemic issue isn't addressed, it's hard to see 
sort of this boom. What was really interesting um, following the Hong Kong economy over the past year and a half during the pandemic was that everything seems to be, you know, muted. Uh, trade, of course, has slowed down. Uh, GDP plunged last year, worst economic hit ever. Um, the last two years, super challenging, not only because of the pandemic, but also China-US tensions, also the protests, obviously. But <laughs> housing prices are still pretty high. Yeah. You know, that's the one sector in Hong Kong where it, it's been really, really resilient. Um, just give us your take of whether even that could be affected, not necessarily just housing, but I mean just the overall uh, Hong Kong as a financial hub, Mm -hmm. because foreigners have also started leaving, right? As you say, because of all of these issues, having to quarantine as well, and perhaps the national security law also starting to worry some people doing business in the city. Yeah, um, it's interesting about the housing prices um, because, I mean, look, there there is a sense that rents are going down a bit not not really to the point where they're still mm. still ridiculous in some ways right like <laughs> right. they're exponentially high going down a little bit just means hmm, <laughs> pennies but the housing price I, I would say in general property price has as i think you you did mention this earlier sherry and i think we didn't fully sort of address that i think is probably at the heart of so many issues here right because you know at the end of the day the prices are just so, you know, the fact that, you know, sort of hardworking younger people could sort of never really afford to buy even a starter home. It, it, it is a big issue. I think officials in the last few years have said that they'll, you know, look at this, they'll target it, but, you know, I haven't really seen very, very meaningful or very dramatic developments to really fix this problem yet. And so it's, it is a bit of a strange one that, you know, that the housing prices have sort of remained resilient. You put a, your finger, Natasha, on kind of one of the things that I've always been struck by in watching events over the last couple of years in Hong Kong, which is you have, it's it's a dichotomy between the trajectory politically in Hong Kong and the actions taken by authorities there um, and in Beijing and the seemingly lack of any change in certainly the the finance sector and sort of uh, critical to the heart of economic activity in Hong Kong, which continues with with little change as far as I can tell. Is that what you're saying? I think that underlying a lot of the different issues that we've seen in the in the last number of years has been that you know, I mean, in some ways, the 2019 protests, the theme of it, not theme, but a sort of the eventual message that a lot of people came out mm-hmm. on the street to talk about is really that, you know, they opposed this sort of increasing influence of China in, in Hong Kong, right? I mean, it, it's, there was always this promise of one country, two systems. And I think, I feel like a lot of young people that we would speak to, you know, talked about just the fact that they felt, you know, there was sort of this identity issue where, you know, like one of the most sort of a, a phrase that people used to say during the protest that, you know, has now sort of been deemed as seditious is is really about the fact that they want the city to be for Hong Kong people. While, of course, 
in for China, it, it's an important financial capital, and I think that's kind of caused a lot of tensions with the local population that perhaps didn't necessarily want the city to to look a certain way or sort of be a certain way. China's plans for Hong Kong are still quite strong. Like this whole idea of the Greater Bay Area is still something that they talk about quite a lot. And in some ways, you can see that now that, as authorities have kept saying, now the stability has been restored in Hong Kong, brighter days are to come. That's what, you know, the message from the authorities are. And, you know, and in the same breath, that talks about the Greater Bay Area plan that they have to sort of better integrate Hong Kong into a a bigger sort of ecosystem. So the Hong Kong people do see Beijing's aim as trying to integrate Hong Kong and make it part of China and strengthen its role as a financial hub? Or do they also fear that perhaps Beijing is trying to take the spotlight away from Hong Kong? Because we have seen some more efforts to really stimulate and bring capital into other financial centers within mainland China, like Shenzhen, Shanghai, loosening of restrictions there. In a way, for two different narratives, one is the Greater Bay Area, and you want Hong Kong to be more part of the mainland, but at the same time, uh, Beijing seems to be strengthening other parts within the mainland that could compete with Hong Kong. Yeah, um, that, that's a that's a question, that's a good question that I think for many years has been sort of the question they oh like is Hong Kong still going to be the financial capital? Is it Shanghai? Is it you know? And and I think it's a, a question that continues to be debated. But if you look at it from the perspective of you know the, I think that Hong Kong still is the city through which a lot of the FDI into China and out of China is routed. Um, you know, I mean, there's a strong internationally compatible financial system which is under China's rule that, you know, is is very useful to them to have, right? It has still a Western style legal system, you know, it's it's English is spoken widely, you know, I think I I have to say like I I don't know which city really in the end will win out, you know, even within within China. Um, but I think it is still hard to see, I think, especially in the finance sector you know, in the immediate future that suddenly, you know, this this crown will go to another another city. And at the end of the day, though, it seems to be that Beijing, it's very clear, it's tightening its grip in Hong Kong, right? On the city, on its politics, on its economy, finance. Natasha, as a journalist, does that give you food for thought? Do you pause when you're thinking about stories to write, when you're thinking of how you're going to word certain stories? Does that concern you? I think that all I can do is keep doing my job the way I've always done. You know, I think truth is the best way that, you know, we can proceed. I mean, I think that at Bloomberg and at the journal, we really aspire to do to, to have the higher standards in journalism. And that means, you know, really making sure your, your facts are accurate, that you talk to as, as many people as you can to try to tell the most accurate story. And I, and I, I personally, you know, I strongly believe that accuracy is the biggest protection in our line of work right now. So 
since we're talking about how China is becoming more assertive in Hong Kong, it also seems to be the case that Beijing is becoming more assertive everywhere. And that we're not only talking about U.S.-China relations on the geopolitical global stage, but even in the space race. And Natasha, of course, you cover that. Give us a little bit of a take of what's happening on that front. Oh, uh, it's actually... Um there's been a lot of developments actually for China's space program. Um, a few weeks ago, China actually made a successful landing of its rover on Mars, um, which was hugely celebrated in the country because they're really the only the second country after the U.S. to successfully land and operate a rover on Mars. But um, there's been quite a lot of developments with their space program over the last few years. Um, as you might know, in 2011, there's been a law in the U.S. where NASA is prohibited from working with Chinese space agencies, or, or, or I think, uh, and so really, since then, China really has been pursuing its space ambitions um, largely on its own, but starting to work with a number of different space agencies around the world. And a few years ago, uh, landed on the far side of the moon, which was a huge achievement for them. Um, And I think we can expect to see a lot of developments. In the coming months, they actually began the construction of the their own space station um, also a few weeks ago. So there's one module that's already in space, a Tianhe core module. And in the next few months, we're expecting that there'll be a lot of different launches of different components when they're building a space station that's rivaling the International Space Station. So I phrase the question as a space race. Is this a race or is this an area where China could actually cooperate with other global actors? That's a really interesting question. I, I think that... Look, let's say for Mars, um, I would say the technology that the Jurong rover that they sent there is still not as technologically advanced as, let's say, NASA's Perseverance, which is also now on the Red Planet. At the same time, one thing that is quite striking is that China's space program has achieved a lot of milestones in the last number of years that took NASA quite a long time to achieve um, as well. So I think... I think it might be a bit too early to say whether there is a real race as such, you know, because I think at the same time you are seeing, you know, China really, really aggressively uh, being increasingly aggressive about what they would like to achieve in space. So, you know, a few weeks ago, they announced with the Russian space agency that they're, they would like to partner on a moon base and they've invited other nations to participate. Um, you know, so I, I think on the on the race issue, I mean, the reason why I'm sort of hesitant to say, oh, it's a race. It's just, I, I just feel like the it's harder at this very moment to still do like an apples to apples comparison of the two programs, I would say, because, you know, NASA really is still the world's most well-funded program. It, it's it's historical advance. You know, it, it, it has done so many uh, different achievements over the last number of decades, but definitely from the people that have been watching the sector that I've been speaking to, they do think that, you know, China really has managed to leapfrog the technology in the last number of years that they've been uh, pursuing this aggressively. Natasha, thank you. Terrific conversation today. I particularly enjoyed exploring in depth and hearing your perspectives on the outlook uh, of the nexus of politics, the pandemic, what's happened over the last couple of years in Hong Kong. 
and look forward to checking in with you at some later date to hear the latest. So thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Natasha, it was really a treat to see you again. I mean, we haven't talked since our Bloomberg day. So thank you so much, Natasha. Thanks so much, Sherry. Take care. Bye. Thank you to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also can access a full video of our conversation at theagentgroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.